Years ago, pastor and teacher Fred Craddock was parked at the curb waiting for his wife to finish shopping when he saw a young woman in her late 20s sitting in the next car, dabbing at her eyes with tissues. He didn't know why she was crying, but he imagined all sorts of sad scenarios. They couldn't afford the beautiful dress she wanted, or she had just learned that her mother was very sick. He was mulling those thoughts when a young man came out of the barber shop carrying a boy who looked to be about three in his arms. The boy's hair was cut as short as it could be. Back in the car, the young woman grabbed the boy, kissed him all over his head, and cried and cried. Then the woman said something to the man. He shook his head, but she kept talking. They argued briefly. Finally, red-faced, the man got out of the car, went back inside, reached under the barber's chair, picked up a lock of blonde hair, and came back out. Now Fred writes, If I had gone up to that young woman and said, Why are you crying? Do you want your child to stay a baby forever? She would have said, Oh, no, no, no. But I've lost my baby. Why do we have such a hard time with change? I remember when we dropped our youngest daughter off at college for the start of her new life. The tears came as we drove home that day, struggling to adapt to the change in our lives. It was good change, but growing pains still hurt. She was changing as she grew up, but I was changing too, and I wasn't sure I wanted to change. Me? Change? Why do I have to change anything? I don't like change and I suspect probably you don't either. The problem is that any kind of spiritual renewal begins when we make a commitment to change something in our lives. Renewal requires change. Change is essential if you are rebuilding a broken world. There's no way to experience God's renewing power in your life without making changes. Change is essential for growth. The Israelites had remained in misery for 140 years. Yes, they had tried to rebuild their nation and their city several times. But like diets, the changes didn't last and soon they were right back into the same old, same old. The patterns persist, and the habits hang on. One writer says change is like a human rider sitting on top of a six-ton African elephant. The rider knows where he wants to go, but the elephant is a large, powerful mass to move. We want change, but part of us, like an elephant, does not want change. We want to lose weight. We also want to eat that ice cream sundae. My friends, it takes more than a New Year's resolution to bring about lasting change in our lives. It takes a lot of hard work and intentional commitment. And we find four principles about change in Nehemiah chapter 2 that are applicable to our lives today. Principle number one. When you change, expect opposition. 
Nehemiah 2, 9 through 10. When you change, expect opposition. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. One of the biggest mistakes we can make when we begin the process of spiritual renewal is to assume a pleasant, level path to change. In reality, the path will be steep and rocky, we will almost immediately be hit with problems and frustrations because Satan knows that we are most vulnerable right after making such a spiritual commitment. Before the euphoria of our new commitment fades, we will face the attacks of the enemy. This is precisely the point at which we often fail. Often the opposition comes from those close to us. Our change threatens their self-interests. Their power base is threatened because we are changing. They fear the loss of control as we change. Let me introduce you to three characters who will figure prominently in the story of Nehemiah's revival. First, we have Sanballat. Sanballat is an example of political power. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria to the north of Judah. Nehemiah probably had to stop and show his credentials to this governor on his way to Jerusalem. Sanballat was most likely from the town of Bet Horon, which was just 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem and controlled the main road into the city from the north. He stood to lose considerable political control of the city if Nehemiah was successful. His political power base was threatened. Pressure politics often stands in the way of spiritual change. When we commit ourselves or our church to renewal and change, then we can expect opposition from those who will lose influence over us. It may be a wife or a husband who will lose control over what we do because of the changes in our lives and our renewed spiritual commitment. Or it may be an employer who doesn't like our renewed commitment to work according to God's ways. It could even be a friend who feels left out of our lives because we no longer do the things we once did together. The second character is Tobiah. Tobiah is an example of religious power. Tobiah was probably a Jew who had become an influential official in the Ammonite government. His name means Yahweh is good, Jehovah is good. The text says that he was a servant, but high officials in the Persian government were all often called servants, so it's likely that he is a government official, not a menial slave. He may even have been a local governor because we know that some of his descendants were governors over the Ammonite territory for many years after this. Some scholars suggest that Tobiah was the son of a wealthy family which owned large estates in Gilead, which was right across the Jordan River from Judah. 
We know that Tobiah was related by marriage to several of the key figures in Nehemiah's revival, including the priest Eliashib. And he will use this religious influence to try and stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Often, opposition will come from those who stand to lose religious influence over our lives. Sadly, religious people may not like the spiritual growth that takes place because of the changes in how you are living and what you are doing. Watch out for such religious opposition. Religious people can make their opposition sound so spiritual when it is not at all. Many a man or woman has been influenced not to attend Bible school or go to the mission field by his own church leaders. Religious influence can undermine the changes God wants to make in our lives if we let it. When God called my parents to the mission field in Pakistan, my grandmother was very upset. She was a fine Christian woman but she didn't want her daughter going halfway around the world to an Islamic nation. She was so upset that she threatened never to talk with her again. It hurt my parents, it hurt my mother, but my parents followed God's call to go to Pakistan, and my grandmother, of course, changed to become one of their biggest supporters. Geshem is an example of financial power. The name Geshem means stout or bulky. He was the leader of a powerful confederacy of Arabian tribes which controlled part of Egypt, Arabia, and southern Palestine in a loose arrangement with Persia. He controlled the southern trade routes to Jerusalem and was likely afraid that Nehemiah might interfere with the profits from his lucrative import-export business in myrrh and frankincense. We can expect opposition when our commitment to follow the Lord hits people in their pocketbooks. It may cost us something to follow the Lord. The opposition will ridicule us and accuse us unfairly. Look at Nehemiah 2, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Change breeds opposition. There will be political, religious, and financial opposition to what God wants to change in our lives as we get serious about rebuilding our broken worlds. Political opposition means power struggles. Religious opposition leads to church struggles, and financial opposition produces money struggles. When we change as individuals or as a church, and we begin to follow the Lord in rebuilding our broken lives on His principles, there will always be some who will not like the changes because they threaten their own self-interests. They will hit you with everything they have. So when you change, expect opposition. Secondly, when you change, assess your situation Nehemiah 2, 11 through 16. When you change, assess your situation. 
Listen to what Nehemiah says. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well, and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down, and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Nehemiah does not make the mistake we so often make of rushing into change. He arrives in Jerusalem and spends three days assessing the situation. Then he takes a few key men and rides around the city at night so as not to tip anyone off about his mission. He wants to assess the situation accurately before he lays out his plan to the leadership. A vision for what can be comes from an accurate evaluation of what is. We can never develop a sense of where we should be going unless we accurately understand where we are right now. And that takes honest evaluation. It takes critical self-awareness. Often we are not willing to honestly evaluate ourselves and our situations, so we never identify the changes that we need to implement in our lives. The city of Jerusalem was about two miles in circumference, but Nehemiah does not ride around the entire city because he's already seen the devastation of the upper part of the city. The city of Jerusalem was located on a top of a hill. The upper part of the city opened onto a plain, so this was the normal point of entry for people. The lower part of the city was built on steep slopes that went down into three valleys, which converged on the southern side of the city. The valleys were the Kidron, Central, and Hinnom valleys. The Dung Gate, or Refuse Gate, opened into the Hinnom Valley, which was essentially the garbage dump for the city. When Nehemiah arrived in the Kidron Valley, he found so much debris that he couldn't even ride his horse. This side of the city had terraces, which had been destroyed, and the rubble filled the valley so that Nehemiah was forced to build an entirely new wall on the top of the slope instead of near the bottom. Nehemiah evaluates the situation before proceeding forward with the renovations. We must plan for change if we want to see change take place in our lives and in our churches. This is often the forgotten step in renewal because we somehow think that it is unspiritual to plan. Actually, planning is vital to real, consistent renewal. One of the major reasons why New Year's resolutions fail is because we fail to develop a plan for how we will implement the changes in our lives. 
one of the reasons churches fail is because they fail to develop a plan for the future. All good plans begin with assessment or evaluation. We must start where we are, not where we want to be. Such a process requires evaluation and the gathering of accurate information. We must have a vision of where God is taking us and an intentional plan for moving from where we are to where God wants us to be. It takes a decision to start where we are to go where we want to go. We will never grow until we start. It seems so simple, but yet so vital, my friends. We can't go on gathering information and assessing the situation forever, or we will never accomplish anything. Some people never arrive at a decision because they always want more information. Sooner or later, we must decide to move out for God. This leads to our third principle about change. When you change, enlist the help of others. Nehemiah 2, verses 17 and 18. When you change, enlist the help of others. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Now Nehemiah challenges the people with the mission. The job was massive. It was overwhelming. So he knew that there were those who doubted that such a big job could be accomplished. It is easier to come up with all the reasons why something cannot be done than to focus on what we can do. The people were poor and trying to eke out an existence. They had been living with the rubble for years now and come to accept the broken walls as reality. They were comfortable with it. Leaders could point to the political powers around them that made it tough to rebuild the city. Finances were limited. There wasn't a lot of money. They lack the skills or the time. There are always many reasons not to take on a big challenge. Major changes in our lives or in the ministry of the church cannot be done in isolation. We need others to help us accomplish our goals. It's easier to change together than to change alone, as anyone who has tried to diet knows. The encouragement, support, and accountability of others will help us accomplish our objectives. Alone in our renewal, we will falter and faint, but together with others we can grow and develop. Notice the pronouns which Nehemiah uses in his speech to the people. He uses we and us when describing the problems. He identifies with the problem. It's not your problem, it's our problem together. A we're-in-it-together attitude is critical to any success in life, and certainly to spiritual success. 
If we do not recognize ourselves as part of the problem, then we will never be part of the solution. If we do not realize that we need others to help us change, then we are likely to fail again. In our marriages, if we're always talking about I and me, then we will never experience renewal of the marriage. Renewal comes when we start talking about we and us. It is our problem and our solution, or it is doomed to fail. In church, an I versus you mentality makes it hard to fulfill our mission. The blame game kills ministry. A good spiritual test of our motives is to listen to our own words and notice what pronouns dominate our speech. John Noe was a mountain climber and a popular public speaker. He told the story of his first attempt to climb the Matterhorn in Switzerland. He had prepared carefully by practicing on other mountains. When he arrived, he had to pass the inspection of the Swiss guide, and he was nervous about it. The guide took him to Riffelhorn, which is a qualifying peak for tackling the Matterhorn. They climbed all day, practicing various techniques. Finally, in the late afternoon, the guide ended the session and turned to John and said slowly, Well, John, it's going to be difficult for you, but I think we can make it together. We can make it together. Nehemiah emphasized the togetherness of this mission with the people. This was not his mission. It was their mission together. Then he related the solution. Focusing on the problem can become depressing. We must move to the solution, but it's no solution if we doubt that it can be done. The plan must have some reasonable expectation of success if we're going to enlist the help of others in the process of renewal. Nehemiah points to two reasons in verse 18 why they will be successful. First of all, he told them how God had provided and directed his whole plan in his own life. God had been favorable to him in this process. God was with him, so God would be with them. Secondly, he pointed to the authority the king had given to him to carry out the plan God had placed in his heart. Nehemiah was not sanctimoniously spiritual. He didn't spout platitudes like, eh, don't worry about all the details, God will help us through it. I mean, the people had heard all that before, and it hadn't worked then what made him think it would work now. No, Nehemiah pointed to the king's words, the commission he had been given, the resources he had. This practical information was important for the people. They needed to know the practical support behind the project. And it's the same in our renewal, my friends, as individuals or as churches. We need to see some reason for success, or it's very hard to step out on faith. We need tangible evidence that the change is doable. We must not neglect the practical issues for the spiritual goals. The two go hand in hand in any renewal. 
You've started down the path of change, my friends. What makes you think you will be successful? Well, first, look back to how God has directed you. Second, look forward with a reasonable expectation that the task is doable. Third, enlist the support and encouragement of others who can help you make the necessary changes in your life and in your ministry. Verse 18 ends by talking about putting their hands to the good. There's an interesting Hebrew wordplay going on in this chapter. The word translated sad in verses 1 through 3, where Nehemiah is looking so sad before the king, is the Hebrew word for evil. It's the same word which Nehemiah used in verse 17, and there it is translated reproach or trouble. Rebuilding the walls of the city would remove the reproach or trouble of the city and the region. That reproach was evil, bad, and sad. In contrast to the reality of bad is the concept of good in verse 18. The Hebrew word translated it pleased the king in verse 6 is the Hebrew word for good. It seemed good to the king to remove the reproach, the bad of the broken walls. Even the pagan king understood that it was good and pleasing to eliminate the bad and the sad. So we have a contrast between good and evil going on in this chapter. All spiritual renewal is a conflict between good and evil. It's a spiritual battle, and we better be ready to do battle when we begin to make significant spiritual changes in our lives. How can we win the battle? The fourth principle of spiritual renewal is when you change, trust in your resource. Nehemiah 2, 19 and 20. When you change, trust in your resource. But when Senballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But you, you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. It's not yours. God gives us success. Satan doesn't like it when we begin to change our spiritual lives for the good. When we begin to do good and right, then Satan will redouble his efforts for bad and sad. Expect it, my friends. You will notice two attacks of the enemy in these verses, which you can expect when you change for the good. They attack with scorn and ridicule. Verse 19 says that they mocked and despised the Israelites. There will be those who laugh at you when you commit yourself to renewal. Scorn is a powerful weapon of the enemy. But the second attack is fear. 
The question that is raised about rebellion in verse 19 is intended to remind the people that 13 years earlier, the work was stopped because the, thing, the king thought they were rebelling against him. In other words, they reminded the people of their past failures. Satan loves to do that to us. And we will say much more about these attacks when we get to Nehemiah chapter 4. But for now, we should notice Nehemiah's response, because his response must be our response whenever we are reminded about our past failures. He points to the God of heaven as his resource. When Satan throws your past at you, and people laugh at your attempts to rebuild your life, look to God as your resource, my friends. God is the one who can give you success. You can't make it on your own. It is only God who will give you the strength to be successful. He enables us to do what he calls us to do. If you try to change on your own, you will fail once again. But with God's help, you can achieve God's changes in your life. My dad had a little saying that he liked to quote frequently. As you travel on in life, whatever be your goal, keep your eye upon the donut and not upon the hole. <laughs> I think this is a vital spiritual lesson for all of us to learn. When people remind you of your past failures and tell you that you can't be successful in the future, don't you believe them. But don't put your faith in yourself either. Believing in yourself is the lie of the self-esteem movement. There is no lasting spiritual healing that comes from believing in yourself. Oh, it might make you feel better in the short term and give you some success, but it won't last, and you will be back in the depths of despair once again. Keep your eyes on the one who can restore you to his service by his grace. Don't get sidetracked by doubt and fear. Focus on God and he will see you through. Keep your eyes on the donut and not upon the hole. Trust God to provide the resources to change. He will enable you to become what he calls you to become and to do what he calls you to do. Nehemiah ends his response to those who doubt what God is doing by saying that they have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Revival separates those who don't want to move out on faith for the Lord from those who do. It is one of the sad realities of change. Change is hard, and there will always be those who cannot catch the vision, so they will be left behind in the process. In a letter dated January 31, 1829, and addressed to President Jackson, Martin Van Buren, governor of New York, wrote these famous words. It's one of my favorite stories. The canal system of this country is being threatened by the spread of a new form of transportation known as railroads. The federal government must preserve the canals for the following reasons. 1. 
if canal boats are supplanted by railroads, serious unemployment will result. Captains, cooks, drivers, hostlers, repairmen, and lock tenders will be left without means of livelihood, not to mention the numerous farmers now employed in growing hay for the horses. 2. Boat builders would suffer, and tow-line whip and harness makers would be left destitute. 3. Canal boats are absolutely essential to the defense of the United States of America. In the event of the expected trouble with England, the Erie Canal would be the only means by which we would ever move the supplies so vital to waging modern war. As you may well know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles per hour by engines, which in addition to endangering the life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock, and frightening women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended that people should travel at such breakneck speed. Martin Van Buren, he could not catch the vision for change, change that was coming. There are many in our churches who have a hard time with change and cannot catch a vision for what God can and will do among us by his power. Do we want to grow spiritually? Growth brings change. Spiritual renewal will disrupt the way we've always done things. But those who refuse to change will be left behind as God rebuilds our broken worlds. Renewal requires change. Maybe God's been dealing with you about some spiritual changes you need to make in your personal life. Will you respond like Martin Van Buren? or Nehemiah. Dallas Willard, in his book Renovation of the Heart, uses the little acronym V-I-M, pronounced like vim and vigor, to describe the process of spiritual transformation. Renovation, he says, follows a familiar pattern in life. There are three steps in the pattern of renewal. Step number one, is vision, the V in vim. We don't grow because we don't catch a vision for what God is doing in our lives and in our ministries. Without a vision for where God is going, we will always fail. Step number two is intention, the I in vim. We must become intentional about making the necessary changes in our lives and our ministries. We must decide to change if we want to grow. Step number three is means, the M in vim. If we catch the vision for God's kingdom and we are intentional about following Christ, we will look for the means to do what he wants us to do. We don't have the means ourselves, but he does. So seek the resources that God gives to make the changes God wants, my friends. Let's live this week with vim and vigor.